This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You say we're on the brink of destruction, and you're right. But it's only on the brink that people find the will to change. Only at the precipice do we evolve. There is a war on. Why bother listening to climate change news? Because nature will break down our lives, making human fights look small. Extinction Rebellion in the Ukraine just issued a plea to stop funding fossil terrorists. Europe's gas supply for homes and industry is teetering. The Rocket Man Club has an answer. Escape to Mars. Journalist David Beers exposes darker myths behind Elon Musk, along with his genius. The oil and gas industries expect another record year, and banks pay out trillions for even more coal operations. From the campaign group Oil Change International, Lorne Stockman speaks to the risks and the alternatives to fossil power in machines and in politics. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Let's start with the invasion of Ukraine again. The communists invaded and then starved the Ukraine in the 1930s. Google Holodomor, Holodomor, all with O's in it, to find the genocide left out of history. Ukrainians do not have good memories about their times in the Soviet Union, not to mention the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear explosion that poisoned the children of Kiev and spread radioactive dust across Europe. A revived Stalinist empire is not where Ukrainians want to go. Extinction Rebellion Free Ukraine developed an ardent climate action community. We just received a passionate, sad last communique from Extinction Rebellion Ukraine as Russian troops marched in. XR Ukraine writes, We want to highlight how the EU's dependence on Russian coal, oil and gas has created existential threats both for world peace and for the climate. The money coming from those sources is no less than crucial for Putin's criminal regime, which uses fossil fuel money for his military aggression outside of Russia and for unprecedented control in world history, TV, radio, print, and digital propaganda and brutal police control inside Russia. What climate policy can Germany and other European countries claim to have if they've been buying oil and gas from an international terrorist for decades? How can the climate crisis be solved when there is an energy security crisis in the heart of the EU? Even without a climate agenda, fossil fuels are a threat to world peace as they feed dictatorships all over the world. But Putin's dictatorship is particularly outstanding, end quote from XR Ukraine. The group goes on to explain the sordid history of Putin's rise to power and the way billions of dollars of European money for fossil fuel has been used against the people of Russia, against democracies around the world. Are you listening, America? And now to invade the sovereign people of Ukraine. Find a link to that document in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Of course, wars and all the industry that go into weapons production are a huge blowout of fossil fuels into the atmosphere. All those ships, planes, trucks, tanks, and industries burn lots and lots of oil, diesel, and bunker fuel. Nothing of value is produced, 
The purpose of armaments is to destroy. Then Reconstruction creates even more greenhouse gases. Industrialized war is a particular human madness. And now it continues long into the future as Earth heats up because of them. Olha Boyko, a coordinator for the Climate Action Network in Ukraine, says, Until Putin's regime falls, there cannot be climate action. Boyko was awakened to shelling and fled west on a train. Chloe Farand of Climate Home Weekly reports, quote, The crisis has already taken its toll on Ukrainian scientists, who have had to leave the report's approval session, taking place online, amid artillery shelling exploding. The only bright spot, Farand says, is Europe's compulsion to end its dependence on Russian gas might accelerate the continent's decarbonization efforts and spur energy efficiency and renewable rollout, end quote. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to my peaceful life on Mars. Let's get to our first guest. But we, who are all that are left of the old engineers and mechanics, have pledged ourselves to salvage the world. We have the airways, all that's left of them. We have the seas, the brotherhood of efficiency. We're the last trustees of civilization when everything else has failed. I've been waiting for this. It is time, ladies and gentlemen... Time to admit even climate heroes can be flawed. We speak of Elon Musk, the visionary who revolutionized the electric car industry. His batteries save emissions. Musk is deploying satellites to bring communications to every corner of the world. His rockets carry scientific instruments into space. But like every human, Elon's mind contains dangerous myths as well. David Beers called out toxic Musk memes in the TIE, Canada's independent online journal. David is the founding editor and current editor-in-chief with a stable of award-winning contributing journalists. Beers was a senior editor at Mother Jones magazine and publishes in major outlets. From Vancouver, David Beers, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, thanks for having me. You know, for many of our listeners, Elon Musk is a savior with electric solutions for transportation and the power industry. What brought you to re-examine Elon's master plans? <laughs> well, part of it might be personal. I grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, my father was a rocket scientist. He worked on secret weapons for uh, locking missiles in space. I was very steeped in this ethos of what I call techno-optimism mega-project saving uh, endeavors. Over time, what I've realized is that while someone like an Elon Musk is certainly brilliant and to be admired for what he accomplishes, we invest too much faith and power in their every utterance and their every analysis of uh, the challenges we face and how to overcome them. They tend to be reductionists and they tend to always point towards the great man in control of massive technological fixes when a lot of humanity's problems can only really be solved in different ways. When a trucker's protest occupied Canada's capital, Elon Musk tossed out an early morning tweet seeming to say Adolf Hitler was better than Prime Minister Justin Trudeau because Hitler had a budget at least. Is he trying to be a counterculture hero or what? You know, it's funny, right? Because he likes to live on on this very public stage. And, of course, social media has afforded him that. He's not the first, right? He's not the first space entrepreneur to behave that way. In fact, Werner von Braun, the Nazi scientist who came to the U.S. and basically built the American space program, 
used to uh, sell his visions on, on the Disney Channel. And so, you know, the idea is if you want to whip up public support for your major mega projects, you know, popular media is a great way to do it. And these folks are not without ego. Uh, I don't think you'd be able to accomplish what Elon Musk has been able to without a large ego. But unfortunately, it's unchecked at this point. He has 73 million Twitter followers, and he feels that he can pronounce on anything without uh, really being held accountable. In the case of Canada, where I live now, as I say, I was born in California, I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I, I live in Canada. We were shocked to see these tweets from him. He had also tweeted that the Canadian government is illegitimate and does not have the support of its own people. And so basically, here was this really powerful man with all kinds, as you say, people who look at him as a savior and as a prophet, basically urging sedition, basically urging the overthrow and the end of, of the existing Canadian government. You know, very troubling, and I think uh, an example of how he's vastly overreached. Well, Musk also appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast. That was in 2018, before the pandemic. He famously smoked pot on camera and wore his Occupy Mars t-shirt. Why not Occupy Mars, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Total Recall? It's a wonderful idea to play with. It's the stuff, again, of, of Hollywood movies and fantasy the problem I have with it is the critical moment that we're in. We don't really have more than a few decades left to really coordinate an effective response to climate change. And in order to do that, we need our brightest minds to basically remind us that we only have one planet and we have to take care of it and there is no alternative. The message from Musk is the opposite. Follow me to Mars somehow that we will, quote, escape the inevitable unraveling of Earth. So he's a doomsayer. He's fatalistic. He says there's no hope for Earth. At the same time, he offers a false hope, which is that somehow we'd be able to continue the species on Mars, which is a, a, just a fundamentally difficult place to populate, to get to in the first place, and then utterly hostile to uh, human existence. So it's a false hope, a false promise, right at the moment when we really can't afford to be distracted. Well, I believe he proposed that we could terraform Mars by exploding thousands of nuclear explosions. Pretty far-fetched stuff. But the EU, the European Union, looked at Mars exploration and habitation and just measured out the radiation, as you point out in your article, and they're off. They don't want to take part in this. It's it's not feasible from their perspective. No, I mean, they're, they're pragmatic, right? Uh, they're realistic. You know, some facts about Mars. It's average temperature is the same as a, a really cold day in Siberia. If you're not in a spacesuit, the air is so thin that your blood will boil. Anybody who's lived on an island, you know, thought it would be fun to get away and live on an island for a while, realizes you've got to schlep all this stuff back and forth from shore. Try traveling uh, all the way to Mars, bringing everything there. So it's just an unreasonable hope. And you do have to ask yourself why. Why Why does somebody like Musk feel that of all the goals for humanity that he could uh, invest his brilliance in, why this one? And my feeling is that the guy was, you know, it's been documented, he was raised on comic books. He famously read every comic book in the comic shop in his town in South uh, Africa. And the problem with comic books is they're both far more dramatic and far more simplistic than real life. And, of course, at the center of them is always a lone hero. 
not some kind of boring collective muddling through action of the sort that we kind of need at this moment on planet Earth. Well, that demand to get off Earth quick didn't start with Elon Musk. Uh, scientist Stephen Hawking famously warned life on Earth is so vulnerable we've got to get to other planets. And now there are multi-million dollar institutions founded on this, like uh, Nick Bostrom and his Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford. They claim, as you say, that we don't need to prioritize climate change or mass extinction or poverty or injustice. But space exploration, that's got to be the big driver and that's where we put our money I hate to be harsh, but it seems like only rich white men could want something like this, don't you think? I don't know. Is it just a coincidence the way these rocket ships are shaped? In other words, I think there's some projection going on there. You know, one of the things that, that these folks don't think they're, and again, they're very brilliant in their area. As a, as a technical mind, Musk is obviously brilliant. As a, a man who knows how to arrange financial deals, he's good at that. By the way, a lot of his money so far has come from the United States government through either subsidies or outright contracts, and he's angling for many more. And so there's a few myths going on here. One is that he's this self-made libertarian entrepreneur doing it on on his own and showing that the U.S. government's incapable of of helping make serious technological things happen when, when actually he's fully intertwined with the U.S. government. But secondly, one of the things that these folks don't think a lot about is the kinds of political issues, social issues, matters of human nature that would cause Earth to get to the point where we'd have to leave in the first place. Would we not transport those same tendencies to the next place we ended up? And now we'd be on a place like Mars, underneath a dome, having to go outside in spacesuits. Everything would have to work absolutely perfect. The amount of rigor, the amount of discipline, the, the restrictions on freedom that a life like that would require and would lend themselves to an accelerated arc of the kinds of conflicts we see now. How long would it take for revolt and dissension and class, you know, widening of class distinctions and all the other ills that humanity can't seem to solve here on Earth? How long would it take for those to express themselves somewhere else? Somebody like Musk is too busy thinking about how he's going to bombard Mars with hundreds of nuclear weapons to change its environment to actually think through the political and social environment that would then exist even if he'd made it a habitable place. Yes, I wonder if you've heard of the 1989 book Stark by the English comedian Ben Elton? No, tell me about that. Okay, so Elton, back in 1989, described a conspiracy of billionaires building a spaceship to escape an ecologically dying Earth. and That was recreated in the recent Netflix hit Don't Look Up. So it seems like men increase their obscene billions uh, while wrecking the planet, but they think somehow these laws of life and physics will not apply to them. They'll either die before it all falls apart or they'll get away into space. It's an odd escapism. It is, you know, and when you think about it, somebody like, we should always look at our leaders and we should ask them, ask ourselves about their formation. You know, if you want to understand the strengths and weaknesses of somebody who seeks to tell you where we're going and how we're going to get there. You should ask where they came from and what character traits they display. And what you see with somebody like an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos is these guys are fully invested in an endless growth ideology and a so-called freedom ideology. But of course, it's a freedom that's tied to accumulating wealth and then spending it as you please. So these guys don't want to hear about the limits. 
They don't want to hear about collective measures arrived at to restrict some freedoms in order to accord more freedom and liberty to to other members of humanity. They just have, a, as I would say, a comic book concept of how society works. And what it boils down to is I'm the winner, I get to do what I want, and I need to be able to express my ego in the most grandiose way possible. It's pretty hard to think of a more grandiose way to express your ego than to send a giant phallic-shaped rocket supposedly to Mars. I will back up and say <laughs> there's a danger at looking at these folks as being just sort of off in a strange fantasy. There's method to their fantastical ideas. And when you look closely at what Musk really spends his time doing, it's building a private although massively U.S. Subsidi uh, government-subsidized space works, in order to put his rockets not as far away as Mars, but merely three, 400 miles in the air. Most people don't think about this because they, when they hear space, they think of something that's just vastly out there. But most of his satellites are orbiting at a distance from us on the planet that San Francisco is from L.A. <laughs> so basically, this guy's found a patch of real estate or 500 miles away and figured out how to colonize it uh, with his technology, his machinery. And from that platform, as you pointed out in your intro, he's going to then build a, an infrastructure of communication to service the earth. Because the earth, of course, is where the money is and where the wealth is and where the action is and where the Twitter accounts are. As much as he projects himself as somebody who would rather be on Mars and thinks about Mars all day, he's really kind of at some level, a basic American type, you know, a, a tycoon, a, a techno baron who is building the next economy uh, here on Earth and trying to corner it. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is journalist and editor David Beers. David is also an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. David, in your article, Enough with Toxic Musculinity, you compared Musk's demeanor to religion. How so? Well, and, and I elaborated on this in a piece. This piece is drawn in a little bit shorter than a, a larger piece that was published in the New Republic magazine in December of 2020. You can go find that. And that one I elaborate on more about this idea of manifest destiny. This is an American concept. It's kind of woven up in Protestantism and the idea that God anoints the chosen and rewards them with success here on earth. And collectively, the idea that God wanted Europeans, white Europeans, to arrive in the New World and colonize the New World, and that we were doing God's will. And that's why we had to, to move across the continent and subjugate indigenous people and, uh, I guess, enslave blacks from Africa, etc. This was all justified as being part of our destiny, our manifest destiny. We were fulfilling God's will. That there was something special about us that was ordained within us and that we were simply fulfilling our destiny. Well, you know, actually, this idea that we have to roam far and conquer other worlds and colonize them is not really necessarily inherent. You know, it is an ideology. The other thing is that, that his, his message that we, we must go to Mars in order to save ourselves is a story of salvation. Of course, most religion turns on a couple questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? 
and how do we achieve salvation? If the answer is, well, we're here because God wants us to colonize and explore and expand and roam far, and you've sort of done all that on planet Earth, then then I guess we must explore space. And this, this argument's been made from the beginning and, and was employed quite a bit by this guy, Werner von Braun, I mentioned earlier, the German. And, you know, the second part of that is to be a doomsayer, to be a prophet of doom and say we're all doomed, the Earth will be much like God flooding the earth uh, and deciding only to save Noah, this is that story all over again. The earth will be destroyed, and only a few will make it, and uh, if you're one of the chosen ones, you will live on Mars. Uh, So there's a lot of religious resonances to this, including the idea of just the lone male prophet leading us out of the wilderness. I know many of my listeners are real Elon Musk fans, and and some of them will think that if we dare to criticize some part of him, that we're really working and helping the oil industry because we're bringing down the guy that's going to get us out of this. And I would love to have a Tesla instead of my gas-burning car. No way I can afford it. We need this guy to succeed, or at least the good part of him. What are we to do? Well, I agree with you, and I hope that I made it clear at the beginning that I'm a huge admirer of Elon Musk's technical mind. I wonder why we didn't have an electric car earlier, but I'm glad that he, you know, pushed through a lot of technology that was made by others, and he assembled it and invented some more and and gave us the electric car. I would caution, though, uh, people against the idea that we would have never had the electric car without Elon Musk. You know, again, history has to be looked at as kind of an accumulation of many people's labors and all creating a critical moment when the crest. And usually there is a there is an avatar, there is somebody at the forefront of it who, who kind of emblemizes that moment and, and Musk deservedly is so. But he hasn't done it alone. So that would be my first point. Secondly, you know, there was a time around the industrial revolution when everything was up for grabs politically. And one of the ideas was we don't want democracy. This is too complex of a new world we're entering now that we're going to have have highly organized uh, industrialized systems. We're going to have to extract resources, distribute them efficiently, uh, make really uh, large-scale decisions about how wealth is, is distributed. You know what? We can't really leave that to the people. And so, what arrived at that moment was a was a, an ideology called technocracy. And the idea is that the world would be ruled by technocrats. That it would be ruled by engineers. Engineers would make the decisions. Engineers would. Um, they were the smartest. Uh, they were trained. Uh, they knew things we didn't know. Uh, they became the new priests. And we would do what they said. They would arrive at the decisions, and they would tell us how it was going to be. And so this was a, a briefly popular ideology. It competed with others like communism, socialism, capitalism. Uh, it's faded away now. But in Musk, I see some of that resonance, some of that yearning. You know, this is too complicated. We can't muddle through. Dem- Democracy is too messy. What we need is a few smart folks who really know how to build stuff and they'll get us out of this. And that was what Joe Rogan was saying, for example, to Musk on his show. And that, that show has had, I don't know, how many million, tens of millions of views at this point. So there's still a yearning and a resonance for the great technocratic leader. I just would split it. I would say appreciate Musk for what he does and the role he provides in society, but don't accord him more political wisdom 
or even religious kind of powers of leadership, then uh, it's safe. Well, as you say, you first published your Elon Musk critique in the New Republic and then in the Taiyi. What does Taiyi mean, and what can listeners expect to find there? Oh, yeah. Well, the Taiyi is, uh, is a word from a language called Chinook. And Chinook is a language that was developed when, first it was developed among various indigenous peoples who lived all around the Northwest. So from what is now British Columbia all the way down to California, what is called Cascadia, there were many indigenous groups, and they all needed to be able to talk to each other and trade. So they developed this language called Chinook, and it, it, it didn't have a lot of words, but they were they were the important words and effective words. And when Europeans arrived, then they adopted this language to conduct their business and trade with indigenous folks. And so Taiyi means chief. It means someone or something of superior qualities. And we chose that word because people in this part of the continent know that word, and it connects back to indigenous folks. And that is the spirit of the Thai. The Thai is regional journalism. It's local journalism, but with a big lens. As you see, we don't shy away from talking about Elon Musk, even though we're based here in British Columbia. So if you're curious about uh, life in the Northwest or Western Canada, and, uh, and I can tell you this is a fascinating place to do journalism. It's a very international place, all at the same time that it's very specific in its issues. You know, if you're curious about that sort of thing, Go to T-H-E-T-Y-E-E, the Thai-E, Google that, and uh, you'll land on our pages. You must get hits from all over the world. Oh, absolutely. We get about a million page views a month. And uh, one of the things that I'm really gratified by is we'll publish something about climate change or about uh, green politics or about Elon Musk or whatever, and people from all over the world will share it. And we'll know that because the authors of these pieces will get back and say, I can't believe how far and wide this piece went. And I think it's a testament to local journalism. I think people feel very connected to local journalism if it's independent and it's speaking to the issues they want to know about. They feel very connected, and then because they feel connected, they want to share and so, like, I have writers who say, no, I wrote this, I wrote a piece for the National Newspaper of Canada, and I didn't get half as much interest. And I think it's because people read it in the National Paper and say, okay, everybody's seen that. But if they read it in the Thai, because it's their local favorite source of, of information, they'll say, I'm not sure everybody sees this, I've got to share it. So, yeah, I, I think we're, we're a great experiment, very hopeful experiment. I know there's a lot of doom and gloom about the future of journalism. The Thai is an example of a, a thriving example where members supported, we're independent. I think we're, we're an example of where, where journalism is going. Well, you and I lived through a local story last summer that I think the whole world needs to really realize. People think climate change is 2050 or 2100, but we had extreme heat, up to 50 degrees almost, and the floods uh, throughout the lower mainland there. I wonder, with all the other troubles, when people are focused on the Ukraine or the truckers or the pandemic— are you going to continue to cover climate change, and should we? Climate change has been the number one story for me. I remember uh, writing about climate change and publishing stories about climate change before we started the tie in 2003. We were publishing stories about climate change from the beginning, and people would say, well, oh, this is boring, and why so much? I said, well, it's just, I don't know, it's just the end of humanity. It sort of seems like, like kind of a top story. <laughs> And of course, you know, part of 
what I think has always driven my desire to publish stories about it is I do believe that if we're well-informed and not disinformed and not distracted, but if we're well-informed, we can collectively make changes and make the right decisions. And time is growing shorter. The, the span of time we have to make those decisions and make those changes is now sadly far shorter than, than it was when I started on this. But there is still time to make significant changes. Elon Musk is part of the solution, I agree. He's also part of the problem, as we've discussed. And we have to sort through his disinformation at the same moment that we celebrate his contribution. You know, I mean, he was at the beginning of COVID, he was telling everybody this thing will be gone in a month. You know, so let's let's not assume Elon Musk because he's smart is right about everything. Right. He can make cars, but not societies. And I think we need to know the difference. You can find this all at the tie.ca. Our guest, David Beers, is the founding and current editor-in-chief. You can find his articles in many magazines. I'll put links for this interview in my show blog at ecoshock.org, including David's article. You should read it. Enough with Toxic Musculinity. David, you brightened my day with your piece. Thanks for spending time with us. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed this. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Humanity is finally turning away from fossil fuels. With growing climate awareness and warnings from top scientists, big money is divesting from oil, gas, and coal projects. That is good news for our threatened future, except none of it is true. Fossil fuel production and carbon emissions continue to balloon beyond record levels, despite green commitments from presidents, prime ministers, and kings. In war, peace, and pandemic, the carbon machine pours on more greenhouse gases into the sky. Lauren Stockman is the research co-director at Oil Change International. He specializes in the North American oil industry. Lauren previously produced research and reports for Greenpeace UK while campaigning for climate action. He holds a master's degree from King's College London and co-authored the book The Next Gulf about oil and conflict in Africa. From Washington, D.C., Lauren Stockman, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, great to be here. Of course, world attention has swung from pandemic to the invasion of Ukraine. It's like a big spotlight. So why worry about energy and climate change at a time like this? Well, I mean, obviously, climate change is one of the biggest planetary crises that we face. And we've, you know, I don't think anyone can have missed in the recent years the wildfires, the floods, the extreme weather, the increasing severity of, of storms and the increasing frequency of severe storms. We do have some pretty serious short-term crises on our hands today with what's going on in Eastern Europe. You know, climate change remains the biggest long-term existential threat. Russia supplied about 10% of world gas and oil, almost half of Europe's gas. Do you think this war in the Ukraine will stimulate even more fossil fuel projects in the United States trying to make money by filling the gap? Unfortunately, I, I do think that's what the industry is certainly pushing for. I think that's pretty clear. We've seen some representatives of the American Petroleum Institute and other industry representatives getting on 
into the media and using this as an opportunity. We're certainly getting mixed signals from the Biden administration. I think there are certainly things that can be done in the short term to ensure some energy security for European consumers. But I do think it's very, very dangerous to presume that this crisis is a reason to invest in additional long-lived infrastructure to deliver fossil fuels to Europe. I think that would be um, not only a grave risk in terms of how that would lock in fossil fuels and make climate change worse, but also I think that would be a big risk from an investor perspective because we're seeing an energy transition that is accelerating very fast and it's clear that fossil fuels uh, on a global level, they're abundant in some parts of the world and they're not so abundant in others and that we're never going to escape from that problem. So kind of locking in more fossil fuels as a solution to the current crisis would not actually be an energy security strategy. The United Nations Panel on Climate Change called an emergency last year. Even the International Energy Agency, usually a booster, finally admitted we need to stop expanding oil, gas and coal. But Lauren, what do you see really happening? Well, unfortunately, we do see um, the industry responding to these short-term signals. You know, some parts of the industry still continuing to, to kind of push a kind of climate denial message or to offer solutions to climate change and to fossil fuel emissions that aren't real solutions, i.e. full solutions like carbon capture and storage, manufacturing hydrogen by using fossil gas and trying to bury the emissions from that so-called blue hydrogen. You know, some parts of the industry kind of carry on business as usual, and then other parts of the industry that are more public-facing and are more concerned about their reputation like the big oil majors, the big names that we know, like BP, Shell, uh, Exxon, etc., starting to put forward these full solutions that continue fossil fuel use, but under this kind of myth of carbon capture and storage, which to date has been a very big expensive failure. Yes, Shell Oil has done exactly that in Alberta, Canada. They've put on what they call carbon capture and storage as they produce hydrogen. And they say that will allow people to keep burning gas for generations to come. And for me, that's chilling. That's just a disaster in the making. Yeah, I think that's right, because the track record of carbon capture and storage today has been very, very poor. A lot of projects fail to meet the goals that they've set. They don't capture nearly as much of the carbon that they claim that they will do when the project's proposed. They've sucked up billions and billions in government subsidies, and now they're asking for more because it surely it will work this time if we plow more money into it. And they're also ignoring the other impacts. Even if the, the, the capture rate of carbon dioxide improves, and they succeed in in doing what what the projects are are designed to do, we still have the many impacts for local communities, for environmental justice communities, you know, the the communities that have historically borne the brunt of the industry's pollution and environmental destruction. So if anything, these projects, they require a lot of energy. So more, you know, if you're going to capture the emissions from, say, a gas-fired power plant, or some other industrial facility that's using gas, you've got to use more gas to run the equipment that does the carbon capture piece. So if anything, these projects are threatening to increase 
the impact of the fossil fuel industry on our planet. Well, there is a thing in psychology called cognitive dissonance, and that's where you have to hold two conflicting ideas in your head. And this whole fossil fuel world is just full of them. I mean, at the COP26 in Scotland, U.S. President Joe Biden said the science is clear. We need to limit global warming. It's a great challenge. But didn't Biden just approve a bunch of new oil and gas drilling leases in the Gulf? Well, that's right. They did go ahead with that sale. And actually, since then that lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico has been overturned by a federal court. So it remains to be seen what actually happens with that sale. I'm sure the industry is going to attempt to overturn that decision. What's clear is that the Biden, you know, is being pulled into two directions and it hasn't shown that it's fully committed to the promises it, it made in Glasgow by continuing with those lease sales and also it's pushing for solutions like carbon capture through the Department of Energy. It hasn't fully recognized the role of US LNG exports and has not committed to putting the current crisis in, in, in Europe aside and the kind of short-term actions they might be taking there. They haven't really committed to stop expanding US LNG capacity. Right. And, you know, as, as you permit new LNG plants, those plants take years to finance and build. So projects that, that have only recently been permitted or are about to be permitted, they may not be actually operational for five or more years from now. And that has nothing to do with the current situation in Europe and threatens to, to lock in emissions for decades and decades from dirty fossil gas. So we have seen some positive action from the Biden administration. And also from Congress in the infrastructure bill, there is some serious funding for um, helping the U.S. economy transition to cleaner fuels. But at the same time, there's funding for things like carbon capture. There's still a reluctance to definitively call an end to fossil fuel expansion in this country. Yes, the U.S. Energy Information Administration forecasts American oil and gas production could break a record this year because of higher prices. But I think the disconnect is the public doesn't realize you can't produce more oil and gas without producing more global warming gases, without causing more tremendous storms and fires and droughts and all uh, heat. Uh, we lost 600 people to the uh, heat effect last summer right here in British Columbia, in Canada. It was, a, it was a shocker. So we need to make that connection. If you go and make more of it, more people are going to die and, and go through suffering. Well, I think that's right. And I think that realization, there has been somewhat of a sea change in, in realizing the threat of climate change among the U.S. public. But, we, you know, we have a fundamental structural issue in U.S. governance on issues like this. It comes down to the tremendous power of the fossil fuel lobby on Capitol Hill and in state capitals, their ability to be able to finance the campaigns of politicians that support what they're doing. And Oil Change International, we were founded in 2005 with a campaign that basically looked at the money in and the money out. The money in was the campaign finance. We built a database tracking the, the companies and members of the U.S. House and Senate who, and how much they were receiving from fossil fuel companies. And then we documented the money out, which is the subsidies, the production subsidies, the tax breaks, the royalty breaks, the, the tax loopholes, that some of which have been in existence for over 100 years in the U.S. for oil and gas producers. 
So we've been highlighting that issue for um, over 15 years now. We've made some progress. We've seen the Biden administration call an end to international finance, so kind of development aid finance that it was giving to oil and gas projects abroad. It's not perfect, but it's certainly a start, and we're pushing very hard to remove the domestic subsidies for the oil and gas industry. That's one of the kind of crucial structural flaws in in the American system that makes it very difficult for climate policy to be enacted at the level that it should be. And, you know, I don't think you can see a kind of clearer example of that than what happened in the Senate with Joe Manchin from West Virginia and and his blocking of the Build Back Better Act, which had significant funding for clean energy transition in that bill. So these are the kind of structural challenges that we face in the U.S. in trying to get change. I believe we are making progress there, but we need to be fighting a lot harder, and we need we need elected officials that are prepared to stand up to the fossil fuel industry. You know, I would also mention we've had we've had a, a number of pushes to get delegates and, and people running for office to forswear fossil fuel money, and no fossil fuel money pledge. And we need more people to come forward and run for office under that banner of running for climate action and for people and not for the fossil fuel lobby. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. Ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. Our guest is Lauren Stockman from Oil Change International. There seems to be a race between Qatar, Australia, and the U.S. for title of the world's biggest gas exporter. For me, that's a race to the bottom, like who is the world's worst mass murderer or something. How can we counteract that terrible trend? Well, we've been working to expose the damage that LNG does. It's very interesting, actually, just a couple of years ago, as the U.S. LNG industry was gearing up, the industry was pushing U.S. LNG as a clean fuel, a clean fossil fuel, and they were making claims about that that were unsubstantiated. And then um, something interesting happened in late 2020 when a French utility, Engie, which is partly owned by the French government, was in negotiations with a proposed LNG terminal in the Rio Grande terminal in Brownsville, Texas, which has tremendous opposition on the ground to it. And they pulled out of uh, signing a long-term contract for the gas for LNG from that project over the the amount of methane and greenhouse gas pollution that's associated with the Permian Basin in West Texas and New Mexico where that plant would have sourced its gas. And that was a wake-up call for the U.S. oil and gas industry and the, and the LNG industry. And suddenly we're seeing this industry coming up with all sorts of proposals to clean up its LNG. So what was supposed to be really clean to begin with is now, well, we can make that cleaner and we can compete in the global market saying ours is cleaner than others. And they're proposing carbon capture and storage facilities at, at the liquefaction plants where they turn the gas into a liquid to, to put onto ships. We're seeing claims of, you know, being able to trace the supply of gas and only buy from suppliers that have lower methane rates. All of this is an endeavor to kind of remain credible and remain relevant in a world that's decarbonizing. So, you know, our job is to expose the falsehoods behind that, to explain to customers in Asia and and Europe that are in line to 
receive this LNG, whether it's from the U.S., Qatar, or anywhere, and explain that you can't really clean this stuff up to the level that is acceptable in, the, in, in a world that's transitioning to, to meet the Paris Agreement of 1.5 degrees. That's kind of the approach we're using is to, is to you know, shine a spotlight and fact-check these claims and expose the fact that LNG is dirty, it was always dirty, and you can't really clean it up. There was a wave of news stories declaring coal dead or at least a dying industry. Some coal power stations did close and several of the biggest American coal mining companies went bankrupt. But now the German group Urgewald reports big banks have laid out another $1.5 trillion on further coal growth just in the last two years. What are you hearing about this dirtiest of dirty fossil fuels? Yeah, that's extremely disturbing report from Urgewald, and we work with Urgewald in various ways. And and that's right, you know, we're, we're still seeing this investment, and it's extremely disturbing. We need to call out, as Urgewald is doing, and as, and as we're, we also do together with Urgewald and the partners like Rainforest Action Network and the Sierra Club, where we produce this banking on climate chaos report uh, annually, which adds up the, the finance that the, the banking sector is channeling towards the fossil fuel industry. This is a, the completely wrong direction that the, the finance industry is, is going with, with coal and oil and gas, and we need to expose it and call it out and hold these banks to account. Let's talk about my own country, Canada. Young Prime Minister Justin Trudeau paints himself as a world leader in the battle against climate change. But Trudeau spent over $4 billion of taxpayer money to purchase a tar sands pipeline that no private company would build. And we just learned, just in February, that the cost has soared to over $21.4 billion and counting. The cognitive distance between green talk and massive spending is so hard to take what is your understanding about Canada? You know, I think that's a fine example of, you know, the short-sightedness of politicians and what they feel they need to, the interest they feel they need to appease in order to get re-elected. It's very, very short-sighted. It's clear that the industry in Alberta in, in particular has asserted an incredible amount of pressure on, on the Trudeau government it's extremely short-sighted. I'm certainly sympathetic and understand the position of workers and communities that have, you know, for decades been reliant on these industries. You know, and in Alberta, of course, you have a significant part of the econ economy that is uh, historically been linked to oil and gas. But, you know, the writing has been on the wall for, for decades now. And certainly in the last decade, it's become clearer than ever. And we need to see leaders who are prepared to stand up to the industry and to plan for a just and managed transition away from reliance on the fossil fuel economy. It's difficult. It's certainly a challenge uh, and a threat to, to some communities and some group of workers. But I believe, you know, there, there are ways to manage that transition we're not going to see those economies change overnight, but we should, you know, we should be further along at this point in planning to wind down those industries and replace those jobs with those that are not going to lead to the destruction of our climate system. It's, it's extremely disappointing to see how, how the Trudeau government uh, rescued the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I think it's become increasingly clear that it was extremely foolish and um, a waste of public money, and the decision-makers need to be held to account. 
Lauren, we have radio stations in the UK where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is also warning about dangerous climate change, blah, blah, blah. But in late February, the UK's Energy Minister Greg Hans told an online energy conference, quote, we need continued investment into the North Sea. It sounds like madness. And indeed it is. And, you know, I think we've seen numerous studies and analysis coming out of um, some great climate advocates in the UK that show that that this is just complete nonsense. Um, The UK has actually done, you know, a fairly good job of transitioning its power sector away from fossil fuels, its its, uh, wind both onshore and offshore wind industry is is one of the biggest in the world, and it can do a lot more and can and, and needs to to be focused on that. Again, it's using the current prices that we're seeing today as an excuse to carry on business as usual and further entrench the fossil fuel industry. It's very clear that that is not going to solve the problem long term in terms of the you know the energy security problem and the, you know the way to address energy security is to reduce your reliance on all fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Uh, President Putin or anyone else cannot use wind and solar as a, we- as a weapon in the way that he's tried to use gas as a weapon in Europe uh, or as a negotiating tool. But that's just something that's not going to happen when your reliance on oil and gas is is definitively in decline. And that's what the UK and other European countries clearly need to do. This is where renewable energy and the peace movement must get together. I mean, that's what we need. I think that's right. I think that's right. And and we, we see that happening in, in some places. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very clear that fossil fuels have been a catalyst for conflict, economic inequality, environmental injustice, environmental racism. For decades and decades, we've seen these problems, you know, whether it's the resource curse in countries like Nigeria or Venezuela. This stuff has been well understood, well known, well documented for a long time. And we've continued to see the entrenchment of the fossil fuel industry. You know, let's face it, it's an industry that's been around 100 and 150 years. It's in almost every country in the world in one form or the other, either as a producer or as a, as a distribution industry. And they are very adept at manipulating the politics and the policy making in, in many countries. We need to break the link between politics and the fossil fuel industry or governance and the, and the fossil fuel industry. And that's the case, whether it's Canada, the US, Russia or, or Nigeria. We've got to hold our politicians to account when they make decisions that are further entrenching fossil fuels into our economy. Over a decade ago, you and Andy Roll wrote a book about London, Washington, and African oil. I see in the news the country of Niger plans to be a major oil and gas powerhouse, and Shell is busy with light oil off the coast of Namibia. It seems like the fossil disease has spread deeply into Africa, is it too late to stop it and, and get solar and wind where they will really work well? I don't think it is too late. No, I think these companies are doing what they've always done. But I, I see a growing movement in Africa pushing back on this. And there was, you know, a very, um, a very insightful opinion piece in Foreign Policy magazine from Nemo Bassi, who, who has long been activist in Nigeria, pushing back on what the industry's 
trying to do on the continent. Um, we see study after study showing the best way to bring electricity to the hundreds of millions who don't yet have it on the African continent is to use decentralized distributed renewable energy. We see study after study showing that countries that are focused on, on extracting fossil fuels and exporting them don't have good results in terms of both economics and governance. So we're seeing a building movement. The next climate conference, the next COP, is on the African continent in Egypt. We're going to see a focus on climate in Africa and, and, and the energy transition in Africa at that conference. People, uh, I know that the, the, the advocacy community, the climate community, is, is going to be pushing for that. So I certainly see building movement against that continued, the entrenchment of the extractive industry in Africa. As we wrap up here, tell us about your organization, Oil Change International, and where to find you. Sure, yeah. Oil Change International has been around since 2005. You can find us at priceofoil.org, priceofoil.org. We have been working to expose the true cost of fossil fuels and facilitate the transition to clean energy as one of the only NGOs in, you know, exclusively focused on oil and gas particularly on the public finance, the subsidies, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this, the, the influence of the, of the fossil fuel lobby, its ability to extract public money to, to continue its operations. We're working uh, all around the world now. We've grown to an organization on four continents, and we've been fighting the fossil fuel industry, and we will continue to do so. From Washington, we have been speaking with Lauren Stockman, the research co-director at Oil Change International. Get links to the industry news you just heard in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Get fossil fuel facts and some ways for resistance at priceofoil.org. Lauren, thank you for sharing with Radio Ecoshock listeners. Thank you for having me. I'm Alex Smith. In other news on humans' war on the atmosphere and everything living, this. Sea level along the U.S. coastline is projected to rise on average 10 to 12 inches, 0.25 to 0.3 meters, in the next 30 years, which will be as much as the rise measured over the last 100 years. Sea level rise will vary regionally along U.S. coasts because of changes in both land and ocean height. Who says? That quote is from the latest 2022 Sea Level Rise Technical Report, released in February by top U.S. government agencies, including NOAA and NASA. Their sea level predictions are not based on models, but on more than 100 years of tideline measurements and satellite data. Probably a foot of sea level rise, a third of a meter, is coming in the next 30 years, no matter what we do about emissions. The higher seas are baked in from our emissions already. If developed countries can slash their emissions significantly in the next decade, our last chance, that still won't stop a foot of sea level rise and more due to delays in big systems, especially the ocean. Emission cuts now affect how high the sea will go after 2050 in the second part of this century. That's what we may be able to control. So far, the government agencies do not have a full accounting of the mass damage this will cost in dollars or yen or pounds or euros. Ports will go underwater, coasts will erode, beaches disappear, cities begin to flood, 
salt water seeps into former farmlands. The impacts of seawater being a foot higher will change more than a billion lives. Note the 10 to 12 inches, a third of a meter higher levels are based on 2010 sea levels, which were already 5 to 8 inches higher than they were 40 years before that. Nicole LeBeouf, director of the National Ocean Service, warned there will be high tide flooding even without any storms. This is the new normal. In 2050, sea flooding will happen 10 times more often than today and 4 to 5 times every year. These estimates do include new assessments of rapid ice sheet loss, although I think that may come quicker than current estimates. Sea level rise will be greater in some places where land is already sinking, like New England and the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, and somewhat less on the Pacific West Coast. But sea level rise is a major problem around the world, from China to Africa to South America and beyond. I will put a link to this report and their YouTube video of the press conference in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The UN Environment Program, UNEP, just released a new report on wildfires in a warming world. It is titled, Spreading Like Wildfire, The Rising Threat of Extraordinary Landscape Fires. Our West Coast listeners will not be surprised to learn wildfire risk is projected to rise, quote, 14% by 2030. 30% by the end of 2050, and 50% by the end of the century. Considering so many people are already evacuated, burned out, or choked out by smoke, this is terrible news. I am searching for an expert to discuss this report, but hey, let us celebrate the rise of oil stocks and the great gas production figures for 2022. We do not have to torch the future. Please think about how you can support climate action, nonprofit groups, government action, and Radio EcoShock through EcoShock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to The Big Picture in war and peace, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. (laughs) 